Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. I am hoping that this episode gets to you before the holiday season, as it might inspire a gift idea or some holiday reading. And that's because in this episode, I'm chatting with the very lovely and highly awarded Dr. Dinesh Palipana. Dr. Palipana is not only a doctor, but he's a lawyer, a disability advocate, and more recently, an author. He's been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia and was the 2021 Queensland Australian of the Year, as well as being the recipient of many other awards. We talk about his work, his views on medicine, and the impact that anaesthetists have had in his life. We also talk about his book, which is called Stronger and which I highly recommend. All right, let's get into it and hear directly from Dr. Palapana. Thank you. Thanks for giving up some time today. No, thanks for making time. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, good, good. Speaking in productions, how do you introduce yourself? You've got so many hats. Do you say, are you a doctor, a lawyer, an author, disability advocate? How do you like to frame it all? I don't even get into it. Hey, I haven't really got a title that I use often. I'll say like where I work, but there's nothing I'm particularly attached to. And when you say that sometimes you introduce yourself in the context of where you work, where are you working now? I work at the Gold Coast University Hospital in the emergency department. I guess that's my day job. And then I work at Griffith University in research, so it's spinal cord injury research lab. And I do a few other things. So the Disability Royal Commission is something I'm pretty proud of. I'm a senior advisor to it and looking at disability issues. And a little bit at the Jameson Trauma Institute, looking at some spinal cord injury work as well. So very lucky. Very, very lucky and very busy. And I want to also say, oh gosh, lots of thank yous and congratulations. First of all, thank you for writing an article for our Australian anaesthetist back in, I think that was the June edition of this year. That was a good article. I've had some good feedback from that. Oh, that's so good. Thanks for the opportunity. The whole issue was just amazing. And I'm blown away by anaesthetists as professionals. I'm just constantly surprised by the out-of-the-box thinking and just the amazing people that I come across in the specialty. So cool. Oh, you're very kind. I also want to say congratulations for more writing that you've done. More recently is your book for getting that out. I know you've been on a very busy book tour, so congratulations. Thank you. I was so nervous about the book coming out. The day before it came out, I barely slept. Honestly, I was just up all night thinking, oh my gosh, to be out tomorrow. What will people think? Have I written it? Have I done an okay job? I don't know. So I was uh, super nervous, but it's been so nice and I've been happy. Wow. I've been seeing lots of good positive reviews on it. I can't wait to have a read through it myself. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's all right. And you've got just a ton of accolades under your belt. Order of Australia Medal, Queensland Australian of the Year, to name a few. All round congratulations for the incredible work that you've done to deserve all of those awards. Thank you. When I think about those milestones, they actually just remind me to be better every day. And they remind me to hold myself to a high standard and to actually use those platforms to do more back. Because I don't think those things are laurels to rest on, but rather reminders to continue and to hold myself at a better standard and to give more back to the community. 
Wow, you're always so impressive and humble, Dinesh, in your replies. And I'll come back to what else you might want to do. But I want to go back because some anaesthetists who will be listening to this podcast won't know the turn of events and partly what's led you to where you are now. So do you want to go back and just explain in your words what's happened? Yeah. So a quick summary of life. Born in Sri Lanka, lived through a war, moved to Australia, lived in Byron Bay for a bit, went to school there, went to law school, got depression, ended up in medical school. I didn't realise you did law school first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say got depression, got clinical depression, diagnosed? It was terrible. I had severe depression. I had generalised anxiety disorder, I had panic disorder. With agoraphobia, I was too afraid to go outside. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine that from what I know of you now. That is an incredible turnaround. I know, right? I was a very different person back then. And my world was extremely dark and scary. And it is one of the hardest things I've been through. And I felt more paralyzed then than I do today with the spinal cord injury. Wow. It was very debilitating. But actually, that's what led me to medicine. I started seeing a GP and the GP changed my world. And like when I came out of the depression, I actually got a diagnosis of celiac disease then too, which might have contributed to what I was going Mm. through. Interesting. But my world changed. And my mom says that by helping one person, you mightn't change the world, but you'll change the world for them. So I just wanted to get into the business of changing worlds. And then I got into medical school. I knew, like I knew from day one, this is where I was supposed to be. Like I loved every minute of it. I loved the subject matter. I loved the people, I loved the patients. I loved everything about it. I still think this is the best job in the world. But I ended up in a car accident in 2010. My car, we think it aquaplaned or hit a slick of oil or a water puddle. We don't know. We know that there was something on the road because I saw it and The fire truck that came to the accident also ran over it and lost control. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we don't know what it was, but there was something. And uh, my car rolled over when it landed. I had a spinal cord injury. I knew because I couldn't move. I couldn't use my fingers anymore. And I lost all function below the chest. And that's what happened in 2010. And it was the biggest turning point of my life. Oh, I bet. Spent seven or eight months in the hospital being a patient, which I hate being a patient even now. Like it's so disempowering. It's scary. It's terrifying. You don't know what's going on sometimes. And it's actually pretty dehumanizing. And another four years putting life back together and then came back to medical school. Really struggled to get the internship. But here we are six years down the track. Well done. Thank you. I work as an unaccredited registrar in the emergency department today. And how far through your medical school were you when the accident happened? Halfway. Exactly halfway. And I know that there'll be some people who may not have read the article that you wrote for Australian Anesis. If they haven't, I suggest they go back and read it. But they'll be questioning, how can someone with a spinal cord injury work in an emergency department? And I thought you had some really lovely words to say around that. Do you want to say them now? I think the whole issue is good to read because it's got stories of anaesthetists who've got spinal cord injuries too, right? And when I was in my intern year, I did the surgical rotation as we all have to. And I think the surgeon that was supervising me put it best. And I am so thankful to him for being so honest. So he said that when he first heard that I was going to become his intern, he said, I had so many thoughts and 
I was skeptical and I didn't know how it'd work. And today I'm ashamed of what I thought because today the idea of what a doctor needs to look like and what medicine is has changed in my mind. So for someone like him, who's one of the quintessential old school doctors in some ways, mm. so for him to be so honest and to say that was pretty profound for me. But I think that kind of sums it up, right? Because we have all these ideas about what medicine is and what a doctor should look like. And we just have these fixed ideas about medicine and what we need to do. But I wonder if that's actually correct, because firstly, with regards to some of the physical things, I've figured out how to do so many things, right? If I need to put a cannula in, I can do it with a little bit of help, like for someone to set me up and give me the equipment, I can actually put it into the vein and make it work if needed. It's time consuming, but I can do it. That's good. Because going back a little bit, like what level is your injury? So it's C6 or C7 was the injury. And it's pretty much finger function and everything below. The wrists work. The biceps Mm -hmm. work, the triceps work, but they're a little bit weak. So that's the level of function I have. Wow. So that's incredible that you can cannulate. Well, I've learned with this amazing ICU nurse when I was a student and I've done it to patients as well, because actually one of my friends who's an anesthetics registrar today, Mm -hmm. I remember talking to him when I got back to medical school and one day I called him up and I said, I uh, learned to put a cannula in on a mannequin. And I can just do it and reliably do it over and over again. And he said, so if you can do it on a mannequin, you can do it on a patient because that's how we all learn. (laughs) And I never thought about that. I was like, you're right. I was on the renal team then as a student and those patients are not the easiest to cannulate. That's not the first group of patients I'd be choosing to practice (laughs) on. (laughs) Exactly. But the next day we did our wardrobe. I'm like, can I cannulate a patient? And one of the senior colleagues came with me and I put a cannula in this patient. Wow, well done. Over time, I've learned how to do a few different things. Like I sutured someone with one of my bosses who was around. And so I've learned how to do these physical things. But the thing is, I think especially in the emergency department, like how many patients actually need a chest tube or to be intubated or to do it? There are people jumping to do those things, right? Exactly. But actually 95% of patients, they'll come with chest pain or abdo pain and whatever else. So all you need to do is really examine them. And even resuscitations, it's actually a cognitive task. And they say the team leader should be at the foot of the bed and not touching the patient at any point. So I think the way we think about medicine, I don't know if we should reduce it into thinking that every doctor just needs to be a pure proceduralist. I think medicine is far more than that. And it's really what's the cognitive capacity Because even when you think about it, how do you choose doctors to go into medical school? They're the highest performance in high school or the highest performance in the entrance exam. They're cognitive people that you're choosing. Exactly. We're not going, oh, okay, we need to see someone who's got the best dexterity. No. You put it really well and hopefully this will encourage people to reframe how they see doctors. And that can be a little bit of a painful process to go through, that self-reframing. I think the role of a physician is quite deep and quite cognitive and there's a lot more to it. Definitely. I'll go back. I'm going to make an assumption here that you might have had surgery at some time in the last 10 or 12 years. Yep maybe even before that. And I want to ask, is there anything that stands out for you in that time in your contact with anaesthetists as a patient? 
Yes, totally. I have this memory of the trauma and then being wheeled into the operating theater that day or that night. And I remember talking to the anesthetist and it was a very cold conversation as I was being wheeled into the operating theater. And they just said, you're so badly injured. I can't guarantee you're going to wake up. I don't know what will happen to you. It was that kind of conversation. I remember just being super distressed after that. It was a pretty confronting conversation. Yeah, that's a pretty natural reaction to that kind of information. I don't blame you. And uh, I remember reading this article called Little White Lies in the Emergency Room or something like that. And it was talking about whether when someone's in that situation, say you're intubating a patient with severe burn and you don't know they're going to wake up, what you actually say to them and what's the more humane thing to do. So it's made me think about that. Then on the opposite ends of the spectrum, later I've had procedures where I've just got along so well with the anesthetists and I've just had a blast with them throughout the process where we've later become friends. So I've had both ends of the spectrum, but I feel like the anesthetists have such a an important opportunity, me being the patient, probably having a number of procedures now to leave that impact and to leave a memory. Because really in that perioperative period, you're that interface with the patient. And to give you an example, this wasn't an anesthetist, actually. This was an emergency physician that attended my accident. He was in the ambulance. He's Stephen Rashford, who's now the director of the Queensland Ambulance Service. Actually, a friend told me that he'll get cross at me for letting it out, that he's such a nice person. <laughs> but when I was in the ambulance being taken to the PA, he was there and he knew that I was so badly injured. But I don't actually remember any of the technical things that he did for me. I actually don't even remember what kind of collar I had or what medications he gave or whether he put a line in me and what. It'd be the same for anesthetic patients, right? No one's going to know really what drug you gave, what dose, what you did. But what I remember about him is how he talked to me and Mm. he made me feel safe and he said, I'm taking you to the safest place for these kind of injuries and I'm going to look after you. And we even talked about medical school because it was something I was thinking about. Mm. And he said, I'll find a way. So the lesson there for me was people may not remember what you do for them, but they'll always remember how you make them feel. And I think for our patients too, that's the trick, right? And if Mm. we hopefully anchor back to the reason why we're doctors, And I would hope that at least a part of that reason is for the people that we look after. Yeah. And to think about that impact, of course, our technical skill is what keeps people alive. But imagine leaving that impact where someone's talking about you on a podcast 12 years later. Imagine. (laughs) In a good way. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Not being the one who says, I don't know you're going to wake up. I know, right. So that's hopefully some good words that our listeners can take away if we are in those situations. I love using the word safety and safe when I'm putting patients off to sleep. And when I talk to the hypnosis people as well, they say that's a really good, strong thing to remind your patients about. Because it's scary going to sleep. It's a super scary thing. And I think if you can make someone feel safe, that's everything. And I think years down the track, when we're looking back, we're not going to care about the seniority of our job. It's those kind of moments that we're going to take away. What other nice phrases have you heard that some of our listeners might take away? with? I think safe is definitely one. And I've really enjoyed just some of the human chats, like person to person. 
I've just had some people treating me like a normal person. And in some of the procedures that I've had over the years, it's just been nice to just talk with their niece to this. So just some of those conversations have been really good. And like I said, there's one in particular who I've become a friend with afterwards. But I think everyone just wants to be safe and to be treated like a human being. Two very simple concepts. Hopefully we should be able to nail it, right? Yeah. And you know what? One other thing on that line of thought, Susie, is, and I don't know if this quote is correctly attributed because what I've learned after writing a book is that many quotes are misattributed, but (laughs) it's said that Mahatma Gandhi once said on the topic of business that a customer is not there to serve the business, but the business is there to serve the customer and that the purpose of a business is the customer and that the customer gives the business purpose I like to think that our patients are that too, you know. Mm. They're not there to serve us. We're there to serve them and they give us purpose and they're the reason why we exist. So I hope that kind of anchors us in a good mindset as well. That's true. And hopefully we have a health system that looks to serving our patients. Yeah. And I think that's also important considering that we pay the taxes and we invest billions of dollars in the health system. So we need to make sure that it's there for the purpose, which is the patients. Exactly. I said I'd come back to it. What's next? What's on the horizon? You always seem to be up to something. What are your next big challenges that you're setting yourself? So I've got a couple of exciting things that have been really cool. One is I started flying again. Oh, wow. What sort of plane are you flying? So there's a flying school for people with spinal cord injuries down in Melbourne. Wow. I took the first flight a couple of months ago. Hopefully I can keep building on that and get the pilot's license and fly around. Right. And leading on from that, actually, is I've applied to join the College of Rural Medicine, ACRAM. Great. Uh, Good luck with the application. I've gone to a couple of their conferences and the rural guys privileged me to have a keynote at a conference a couple of years ago. And I met a bunch of the people and they're just like anesthetists, actually. They're like out of the box thinking. <laughs> people-focused, community-oriented guys. And a couple of them said, have you ever thought about joining our college? And through a series of things, I just thought, wow, this felt like a good fit. And I, I feel like I've done challenging things over the last few years. I've stretched myself, got through medical school, got through the internship. And now I'm like, I need some other things that are also hard. I was actually thinking about doing the exam at some point to go to the bar to be a barrister. Oh, wow. Three things at the moment. I'm not surprised. I think there's always something on the horizon with you. I hope we stay in contact so I can keep following up on how your career is progressing because it's just so interesting and so inspiring. No, thanks. Thanks, Amy. And I've got to thank you for the conversations around disability and inclusion. I like that issue of the magazine that came out. I think it's so important. And I honestly do believe, at least in my experience, Anesthesia as a profession, both in Australia and across the world, the conversations I've had with anaesthetists, you as a profession and specialty have actually been some of my biggest supporters to get me to this point. Honestly, thank you for being you. 
I don't think I can take much credit, but I can definitely say I'm very happy to be part of our specialty and I do think it's a wonderful specialty. Thank you for those kind words. I suppose just to wrap up, is there anything that you'd really like to talk about that you haven't been asked? I think we've covered a bunch of things. I guess I'd say two things. Chocolate is amazing. I love chocolate. So do I. What's your favourite? Anything with hazelnuts or cashew nuts. You and I, we've got the same taste. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Now, important question here, Dinesh. Whole hazelnuts or crushed hazelnuts? Oh, I think I'd go whole. And you know what I learned from Twitter? Nutella and crushed wheat bix. Ooh. Ah. Yeah, the night residence, Ferrero Rocher. So in case you need that to get through some of your emergency shifts. I feel like you've started me on the path to diabetes today. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) We need you on this planet. (laughs) I guess the only other thing I want to acknowledge is my mum. I would not be here without my mum who's just fought for me all along the way. But for all of us who pursue this career, I think the people around us who've been patient while we do exams and while we do internships and while we go through training or whatever, I think the journey is so much richer for the people that we have in it. And for me, that's my mum and I, I think we need to just acknowledge them every day. That's a really good thing to end on. Can I just unpack that a little bit further? Where was she at in her life when that decision occurred? I always think it's fascinating what inspires people to completely change a country. Obviously, war is a very big motivation. Yeah. So she would have been 32 when we left Sri Lanka, but Sri Lanka was going through a war. It was an ethnic war. So whether we like it or not, there's an element of racism in that, right? Like two ethnicities fighting each other, that by definition is a race-based thing. And uh, there was a political war in between that. And so there was the violence and there's the lack of safety, suicide bombs going off and shots being fired and whatever else. And then on top of that, there was the poverty and the corruption. Like I remember there was a period of time when she was trying to get me into a good school and none of the principals would take me in without a bribe. She just didn't want to pay a bribe. She said, this isn't right. So it was a combination of things like that. And I I just don't think they saw a good life for me there in particular moving forward. And if you look at Sri Lanka today, actually, again, I was talking to an anesthetic colleague there recently and they said they do operations by mobile phone lights. There's no mm. paper, so they can't write notes. They use boards. And there's no electricity. There's no fuel. There's no nothing. So they still go through a hard time. So I'm very grateful to be living in a country like this where I can be having this conversation with you after being fed and being safe. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're very fortunate that you've made it to Australia. We're very fortunate to have you in our professional community. I've been very fortunate to be able to have a chat with you. So thank you very much for your time again today, Dinesh. Uh, Thanks for having me. You are amazing. So I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and were struck by just how lovely Dinesh is. I've had the pleasure of meeting and chatting with him a few times. And yes, he really is that lovely. During our chat, we referred to the June edition of The Australian Anaesthetist. The Australian Anaesthetist is a magazine that we here at the ASA, the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, produce. That particular edition focuses on doctors, including anaesthetists, who have suffered some terrible injuries and who continue to contribute to our profession whilst working with their disabilities. We really are fortunate to have these excellent and passionate anaesthetists amongst us, and we are honoured that they are members of the ASA. 
Dinesh also mentioned the blog Little White Lies in the Emergency Room. It's a brief read and gives us some food for thought in terms of how we might communicate with our patients when things are looking dicey for them. I've added a link to it in the episode notes and I do hope that you take some time to read it. Finally, if you're interested in buying Dinesh's book, it's called Stronger. I've added a link to where you can buy it on Amazon in the show notes. Of course, you can buy it from wherever you like. We don't receive any commission or anything like that from the link or from sales of the book. I'm just trying to make your life a little easier if you're interested in buying the book. All right. I hope you have some nice things planned for the summer months. I hope that if you are on the roads, be it as a driver or a cyclist, that you're being careful, particularly around bikes. And as always, I hope you are keeping well. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by me, Dr. Susie New, with music created by Dr. Mark Sus. The Australian Society of Anesthetists was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope this means that you are functioning at your best when you are away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire so that you keep performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all the episodes by logging into the ASA website, which is asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on asa at asa.org.au. We hope you enjoyed listening.